the dark days are done and the bright days are here. My sunny one shines so sincere. Sunny one so true. Our next guest is one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. He's a writer-performer on the new Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That was Sarita singing Sonny and Frank Sinatra saying, here's Johnny, the night he hosted the... Tonight's show. This is John Barber live from Las Vegas, Monday, May 14th. I see that today America is celebrating the opening of the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem and that the inhabitants of that semi-stolen ancient land celebrated by murdering 55 more unarmed Palestinians. And if they could, they would have probably bludgeoned 55 more to death with that hand-me-down tablet from one of their most revered forebears, the one that says, amongst other things, thou shalt not kill. It is the day after Mother's Day, a day I sadly never had occasion to celebrate, and one that was was truly saddened for me and my wife yesterday. Almost eight years ago to the day, we rescued a one-eyed cat, the most affectionate little animal I've ever had. Someone had gouged his eye out. I called him Cy, short for Cyclops. Out of that one eye, he saw nothing but good in people, more than I can see. Yesterday, because of an operable illness, we had to heartbreakingly put him down. Maybe now he will see with two eyes an even better life. Without him, I know I won't. With that, to sadden me, I couldn't help thinking about this comment, which I posted yesterday on Facebook as an afterthought with a massive outpouring response from you folks. Except for Jimmy Carter, how many Mother's Days were destroyed by every war criminal president since they murdered John Kennedy? Some of your responses were also heartbreaking and Tomorrow, I pre-tape a show with Cindy Sheehan. It seems one of the last surviving peace activists who knows that heartbreak only too well. But then I got a massively encouraging note. Because of the persistence of a lady court reporter, a fan in Georgia, who made the Hagman Report aware of our film, which is doing great on Amazon, by the way, the American media and the second assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Because of her persistence, I got a thrilling note from Doug Hagman, co-host along with his son of this eminently successful internet show. It's international and it's massive. And from their well-known writer-producer, John Robertson, they invited me to come on live a week from this Wednesday, that's Wednesday the 23rd, from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern to talk about and show clips from this amazing American film. I always said this film was blessed, and truthfully, so am I, especially 
to have guests like the one you're about to meet. An amazing life, an amazing writer, author of eight best-selling must-read books, lectured at Harvard, Oxford, 50 universities around the world, seen on every network and in scores of films and documentaries, especially the classic zeitgeist. As Jim Garrison said in Solving John Kennedy's Murder, follow the money. My guest not only followed the money, he dispensed it. In his monumental bestseller, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, and the sequel followed, follow, that followed it, he dispensed it in his monumental bestseller. He is absolutely unbelievable. And with this most recent sequel, The New Confessions of an Economic Hitman, he has written two of the most important books in the last 50 years about how and why America and the world are in the state we're in today. He is informative, inspiring, intellectual, money in the brain bank. An honor to welcome John Perkins. John, thank you so much for being here. Well, John, thank you. That was quite an introduction. The only part about it I didn't like is when you said he's unbelievable, and that's what the NSA wants to believe, too. I'm unbelievable, but thank you. <laughs> well, listen, I must tell you, I am really so proud to have somebody like you on the show and somebody, you know, I, I would love to have you back another time to talk about, to talk about your books about uh, these other cultures, which are so fascinating, but I want to get to the business of follow the money. So let's start from the beginning. Could you tell me a little bit about your childhood, your family, who your early influences were? And when you were a teenager, did you want to play ball for the Yankees or play hockey for the New York Rangers? What did you aspire to as a youngster? And were the first jobs that you got in your life that paid you money, what you actually had dreamed about as a kid? <laughs> Good questions. You know, so I grew up in uh, rural New Hampshire. My dad taught uh, languages at a boys' boarding school. Uh, he didn't make much money. We were given a house, and I ate with about 240 boys in a big dining room from the time I was around four years old. So I didn't go without food or a little house, but... We, I was surrounded with, by kids with lots and lots of money from all over the world. My dad was a Spanish teacher, so we had lots of Spanish kids around us who came from Latin America. And my dad was also the soccer coach, so I grew up playing soccer, which you don't, back, back in those days, you didn't end up going to a professional team if you played soccer. Probably I wasn't good enough anyway. But um, I actually aspired to being a writer. I love sports, and I also loved uh, writing for the newspaper. When I went to this prep school where my dad taught, I was editor of the newspaper. Uh, and I was an only child. And my dad got three months off every year. We had a little cottage in the woods in a lake in New Hampshire. And uh, my mom and dad sort of did their own things there, and I got to entertain myself in the woods, playing with the trees, etc. It was lonely. So I started very early age writing writing books. I, I started with stick figure comics, and I worked worked my way into writing. By the time I was in fifth grade, I wrote a, a short novel. So I, I really enjoyed uh, that creating that world. And uh, then, uh, in order to, it's a long story, but in order to essentially, in order to avoid the draft, I ended up going to business school 
and then the Peace Corps that sent me to the Amazon, and after that I was recruited by the National Security Agency, which was also draft deferrable, uh, and uh, ended up spending 10 years in, as a chief economist at a, at a company that worked with the NSA. I was really an economic hit man, and then uh, eventually ended Got, got out of that and realized that it was that what I was doing was horrible stuff. That what I was doing why was do, not, uh, why, John, why do you think uh, the National Security Agency tried to recruit you, being in well, the Peace Corps? I know, well, I know exactly. Actually, it was before I went into the Peace Corps, they started that recruitment process. I was married at the time to a woman whose father was very high up in the Department of the Navy, and one of his best friends was extremely high up in the National Security Agency. And they were draft deferrable to a certain degree too. So he get, he while I was still in business school, my my last couple of months in business school, I went through a series of lie detector tests at the NSA. Uh, today is an extensive test. They offered me a job, but then they they I was interested in going to the Amazon. I'd always wanted to be with live with indigenous people, and they very much encouraged me to do that. They said, "We'll help you get in there. You learn another language. You learn survival techniques. You learn." about interrelationships with other cultures, then you can come back and work for us. So they very much encouraged the Peace Corps. When at the, my last year in the Peace Corps, a fellow came down and, and basically recruited me. Uh, but I ended up working, uh, it was, I guess you'd call it kind of undercover, for a big uh, international consulting firm where I quickly rose from economist to chief economist and uh, was doing the kind of work that I've described as an economic hitman. Well, now, okay, as an economic hitman, and I've seen you many times, and I've read read the first book. I haven't read the second book yet, but I read the first book. What was it that you were thinking about on your first assignment? What was your first assignment when your superior said to you, go to this country and talk to this president or this prime minister and tell them we're going to give them this much money? Or else, do you recall it? Yeah, yeah. My first job was in Indonesia, which was a country that was very pivotal in U.S. policy right about then, early '70s. We we knew we were losing in Vietnam. The domino theory was very much in effect that if Vietnam went down, the next countries would be the rest of the Southeast Asian countries, and Indonesia would be a, a linchpin in that. Indonesia had a lot of oil. It was it has the largest Muslim population in the world. There was a lot of reasons to want to keep Indonesia on our side, and they were making overtures to go toward the Soviet Union. So I was sent there basically to uh, get them to do what my job was all about over the years, which was to get countries to accept huge loans from the World Bank or the sister organizations. But the money never actually went to the country. It went to our own corporations, the Bechtels, the Halliburton, the Stone and Websters, the General Electrics, to build big infrastructure projects in those countries power plants and industrial parks that benefited the companies that built them that made huge profits, and also a few wealthy families that own the industries that, that, that could use these, these this infrastructure. But the majority of the people suffered because money was diverted from health care and uh, education and, and other social services to pay off the interest on the debt. And in the end, the country couldn't pay off its principal. So we basically had it. You know, we... They were our slaves. Uh, well, we well John, most, you know, the, the interesting thing about, John, the interesting thing about this is almost sounds as though you lived a Jekyll and Hyde 
existence. I mean, you have these great books about these indigenous cultures. You said you were always interested in them. You were in the Peace Corps. So obviously, it sounds corny, but you and your sight shows it that you are definitely a man of peace. That's your soul. And yet you realize that you're working for what is, in essence, an imperialist bully. How long? Well, well, well John, I, I, have, I have to say that at the beginning, I didn't see it as an imperialist bully because in business school I was taught, and the World Bank continued to, and still continues to, support the idea that if you want to help a poor country, you invest a lot of money in infrastructure highways, roads, electricity, water and sewage. And in fact, we can show statistically that when you do that, the economy of that country benefits, it grows. And so my first years doing this, I thought I was doing the right thing. It was what, what, what all the models showed was the right thing. But after a while, I discovered that those models are very skewed to their extremely rich. So economic, what we call gross domestic product, GDP, is very, very biased towards rich people who own the big industries. You know, even today, if you take the world as a whole, we, we know there's eight individuals who have as many assets as half the world's population. If those True. eight individuals are making a lot of money, doing well, and half the world's population is staying the same or even declining, it's still the overall statistics are going to look very good because those few people who control so many assets are doing well. And after John went years in this business, John. I began to see that in these countries where I was working, that was exactly the case. I wasn't helping the poor people at all. I was only helping the rich people. But it was, took a while to see that. Uh, was there some, I don't, I met, I don't imagine Sukarno, whoever accepted whatever monies the World Bank was offering them, but was there any a leader, like let's say Chavez in Venezuela, and you go to that leader and you offer them what it is. And, you know, you know that American companies are going to come in there and exploit them. Was there ever a leader that said to you, Mr. Perkins, tell your president in the World Bank to take their money and shove it. We'll do fine by ourselves. Did you ever run into that? Yes, I had two clients that took exactly that stance. One was the Democratically elected president of Ecuador, Jaime Roldos, and the other was Omar Torrijos, the head of state of Panama. They both had tremendous integrity, and they saw through the system, and they both uh, were assassinated. Uh, oh, my uh, God. Now, when that yeah, happened, was that the moment that you said to yourself, I must tell the world about what it is that we are doing? And sort exactly. of... Uh, okay, now you're going to do this. What kind of resistance did you meet, and how did you go about finding somebody who would publish this for you? It's a good story because at about the same time, so I, and I also became aware that this is what had happened to Allende in Chile and Arbenz and Guatemala and Lumumba in in the Congo and DM in Vietnam. All these leaders had either been overthrown. Mossadegh in Iran, too. Yes, because they hadn't played the game. They hadn't bought into the deals that they were offered by economic hitmen, either me or people like me. And So continue so the story about how you went about getting this word out. So I quit the, after about 10 years in the business and started to write a book about it. 
And I contacted other people that had jobs like mine. And, and I also contacted the people we called jackals, the ones that go in and assassinate or overthrow uh, the leaders. I was not one of those, but I knew who some of them were. And at the wow. same time, I got an anonymous phone call threatening my life and that of my infant daughter. Uh, and then, and I took them very seriously, these calls, because they, they were terrifying, because I knew, I knew about these people. I knew what they could do. And then I was taken out to dinner by the president of Stone & Webster Engineering Company, big consulting firm in Boston, who had been a, a competitor of my company's, Charles T. Maine. And this president took me out to dinner and said, you've got a great resume. You're a chief economist at our rival. We'd like to use our, your resume and our proposals. You don't have to do any work for us. Just let us use your resume and our proposals, and I'm, I'm prepared to write you a check for half a million dollars tomorrow morning. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Consultants retainer, just don't write the book we know you're working on. So, John, my life's being threatened. My daughter's life is being threatened by people I take very seriously, and I'm being offered a bribe. Totally legal. Uh, consultants retainer is a legal thing to do. And I took the bribe. I didn't write the book. Uh, I didn't, then I wrote five other books on indigenous people, shape-shifting the world as you dream it. Southern Webster were fine with me doing that, but I didn't write the economic hitman book. And then 9-11 happened. I was in the Amazon on 9-11 with some of the people I'd been writing about deep in the Amazon. When I came home, I went up to ground zero, and I stood looking at that still smoldering pit, and I knew I finally had to write this book. But this time I decided that I wouldn't tell anybody I was writing it. I'd do it completely in secret. I wouldn't contact anyone else. Instead of writing an expose that included other people's stories, I would just write a personal confession. It was just my story, so nobody would know. And once I finished the whole manuscript, I got it in the hands of a very good agent in New York, and, and uh, I figured that once it got out to the publishers, it was my best insurance policy, because once it was out there, it's out there. And the worst thing that the that NSA or anybody else could do would be to kill me and make me a martyr. That would sell a lot of books. So I figured if I kept quiet until the book was actually in the hands of publishers, uh, that was a good insurance policy for me. My goodness, you know, and the greatest word in the title... Is so meaningful and moving. Moving, it's confessions, and that's yeah. exactly what you wrote. That you it was a that's confession. That's what I wrote it. No. I wrote it. Be, I wrote it because it was the only safe thing to write. I I wanted to write an expose where I brought in lots of other people that had jobs like mine, but I knew I didn't dare do that. Now I don't want to get a sidetrack too far into nine one one, but what was it that you? That moved you so much about nine one one. You had to have some thoughts about how this happened that was not reported truthfully by our media or by our government or by the non-investigation into what really happened at nine one one. Yeah, and I don't know what really happened at nine one one, but what happened to me was shortly after it happened. I was up there at Ground Zero, and I was amazed that a horrendous crime had been committed. There was no question about that. And yet the crime scene was not being handled the way a crime scene is supposed to be handled. You're supposed to collect all the evidence, save the evidence, and spend a lot of time looking at the evidence. The evidence was all being shoveled up and, uh, and, and sent off to New Jersey or someplace and being destroyed. The evidence was being destroyed. It seemed to me that there was no serious investigation going on here. And I'd flown back from, from, from Ecuador, uh, where I'd been in the Amazon, 
And driving home on the radio, I kept listening to the radio. I couldn't believe that our president and everybody else in this country was saying, we've got to go after Saddam Hussein. We've got to go after them. They were already starting to talk about it being the Iraqis. And yet there was absolutely no indication that it was Iraqis. Uh, we, we began to see that the Saudis had been on that plane. So, you know, over that period of time, seeing Ground Zero and also as the news came in in different, different bits and pieces, uh, I just had an incredible question about, well, why isn't this really being taken seriously? It doesn't seem to me that people are really, really looking at the evidence. And again, I don't know what really happened, who, who's to blame the 9-11, but I do know that it was not investigated in a way that, that I felt that a crime scene, a massive, huge, terrible crime scene, should be, taken, should be investigated. Now, your book comes out. And some folks years earlier had paid you a half a million dollars not to write the book. Did you ever hear from them again, wanting their money well, back? The, yeah, they, by the time I wrote the book, by the time 9-11 happened, a president of some, uh, the president that had hired me had been replaced by someone who I had worked with before and who very, very strongly disliked me. <laughs> For, and that's a long story. <laughs> and... And so once he came into power, he got rid of me and basically released me of my contract. And he didn't know about the book. Or he wasn't. He had been privy to all that had gone on behind making that contract. But he he basically uh, cut my my consulting contract. So I was free and clear to do whatever I wanted by the time I wrote the book. Now, when the book came out, were you surprised by its sudden success and impact? And how did that change or affect your life? Well, I was totally surprised, uh, shocked, in fact, because I have to tell you, the book was rejected by 39 publishers. All the oh, big my. houses. All the big houses rejected it. My okay, uh, hold on. I'm going to interrupt you for just a second. It's rejected by 39 publishers. And your agent stuck with you? Yes. He was phenomenal. My goodness gracious, you were so lucky. As a matter of fact, so were we. Okay, keep going. Yeah, so, and he, he had some personal reasons of his own why he stuck with it, one of which was that his son was the same age as my daughter, and, and he'd gone through something not unlike what I'd been through in the publishing industry. Anyway, he, he stuck with it, and finally the small publishing house in San Francisco that was going through some financial difficulties uh, published it, Barrett Cola. And they did a magnificent job of vetting it and publishing it. The other big companies, what I found out later, is these editors at, at Random House and and, uh, and Penguin and the other big house, you know, they just didn't want to take a risk that I might be lying, that I might be exposed for something else, and they might lose their jobs. But this one company in San Francisco, uh, Barrett Kohler, uh, vetted me very seriously. They found that they went back and saw that most of the things that they could check on out were, were totally truthful. Uh, they published it. And immediately it, it hit the bestseller list and stayed there. It stayed on the New York Times bestseller for about a year and a half. Uh, and then all the other publishers that have rejected it now put pressure on Barracola to, to, to sell them the, the paperbacks, right? They no longer were afraid oh. of it. So oh, had, my uh, goodness. Uh, what, what an absolutely wonderful, wonderful story. Oh, <laughs> 
John, I know, I know that. In fact, Penguin, in fact, paid a lot of money to Barrett Kohler to to buy the paperback. I didn't get, I didn't get an awful lot of money out of that. But I was glad because Barrett Kohler uh, pulled out of their financial difficulties and been a very successful firm since. And I I published another, my most recent book. I also published with them, The Good House. But Penguin then published the uh, paperback, and they also. Uh, gave me an advance and contracted with me to publish to write another book, and then Random House did too. So all these these companies that had totally rejected me before suddenly they see money, you know, with all the signs of clicking away, and they they wanted me. Uh, that is such a wonderful one. I hate to say it, it's a very American story, and you'd also probably like to know that Jim Garrison never wanted to be a law enforcement. Enforcement officer, an attorney like you as a youngster, he always wanted to be a writer. And then when he lost the Clay Shaw trial, well, actually, he won the most important part of the trial. He won the he won the perjury conviction, but the government stepped in and wouldn't let him prosecute. And they eventually imagined that that they managed to sabotage him and get him out of office. And he was elected as a judge. But when he left the office, he was happy because he said, now I can finally sit down and write. And he wrote Heritage of Stone uh, that nobody had heard about. And I had a very successful show in L.A. at the time. And I booked him on the show. And once I booked him on the show, I was fired and he was canceled. But he wrote two or three other great books. It's just, John, it's a wonderful story. And I know that you have to go and run off to do a, another more important interview I would love to have you come back on in a month or so to talk about the other. I'm so fascinated by the stuff you wrote about you know, when you were in, in the Amazon, uh, the, the indigenous people's work. I'd love, love you to come back on. Would you please? Well, yes, I'd love to, John. I'm sorry. And I don't have to do a more important show. This, nothing could be more important. It's just that I, I was on my schedule. This is only half an hour. So I went ahead and scheduled something else. But I'd love to do That's it. Fine. You, tell, and tell, 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 can go, you, you and all your listeners can go to my website, johnperkins.org, and you contacted me, I think, through that last time. There's a young man who works for me, who books things for me. So please do that. I would, I would really, really love to do that. I'd love talking to you. Oh, I would love to do that. And you know what else I would like to do? You probably even never, never heard of it. Um, I would set, like to send you a private link to the American media in the second assassination of President John F. Kennedy, which the leading researchers say is the absolute definitive film, John, on the JFK murder. But the, the movie is more about the birth and purpose of fake news, which which plagues us to this day. And I'd love to get your reaction to that film. So if you wouldn't mind, I'll, I'll, I'd like to send you a, a, a private link to the film. Oh, please do. And I just a few minutes ago, uh, just before we got on, sent an email to, I, I guess it's your producer. So you have my private email address. So please send it to that one if you, if you would too. I would love to, I would love to watch that. I've always been very suspicious of the JFK, the whole, the whole oh, what? assassination you, thing. And you, I think, and I think what what my life tells as much as anything, John, for your listeners' advice, is always look for the story beneath the story because we know that we're lied to all the time. I mean, we've this has been we've seen this over and over. I first became aware of it during the Vietnam War, and then as an economic hitman, and 
you know, weapons of mass destruction, and on and on. I mean, we know that we're lied to. And so what's important is to always look for the story behind the story. That's what you do so, so well, and I certainly appreciate all that you do and want to express my gratitude for your amazing work over so many years. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. I must tell you, you are an absolute joy. Uh, Your work is magnificent. You're magnificent. So are people to go to John perkins.org they can see the other seven books besides the yeah. economic hitman they can yes and they can see workshops that i do places where i'm speaking i would love to meet some of your listeners in person i also take people on trips to indigenous cultures i'd love to have some of your listeners join up and and please sign put your name your your, your email address in the little box so you get my monthly newsletter that updates people as to what i'm doing as well as having i think some pretty interesting newsletters but people actually have to put their 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 email address in the little box love oh that, that is that is so wonderful john again thank you thank you and thank you so much were you lucky enough to remarry do you have children yes yes i i i, I was i'm with a wonderful woman now <laughs> yes thank you <laughs> okay well thank you again so much we will be in touch with you definitely 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 i have so much i want to talk to you about but you will be back and you know as an atheist, I hate to say this, but bless you. <laughs> anyway, go, go off and do the rest of what you have to do. We're going to take a brief break right now and come back with somebody else that you would love. I could not do this show without him. Joe Satilli, the author and creator of News Vandal, the best, most important, most independent newsletter in America. We'll be right back. Hello, this is John Barber telling you about the long-running hit TV series Criminal Minds, now in its 13th year. Criminal Minds explores the work of talented FBI profilers who seek to unravel crime cases through behavioral profiling. Follow the efforts and lives of these elite profilers as they analyze the nation's most dangerous criminal minds in an effort to anticipate their next moves before they strike again. Criminal Minds airs Wednesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 Central. A must-see. Don't miss it. Bye now. Hi, I'm Richard Valzer. This is the great BBS Radio. Thank you for that smile upon your Hi, this is John Barber. You may remember me as the co-host, producer, and creator of Real People, America's first reality show, or most recently as the writer-director of what's been called the definitive documentary on JFK's murder, The Last Word on the Assassination. Now I'm doing a show every other Monday from 5 to 6 Pacific Time on BBS. You'll hear provocative views, unreported news, and film reviews from me with outstanding guests and you. Join me on John Barber's World. Great music from all the greatest performers from sunup to sundown. How do you keep the music? Then, great talk all night. The mysteries of UFOs, conspiracy theories, and the true story.
story of Las Vegas that has never been told. There are three ways to listen to KIYQ. Go to the TuneIn app, just search for KIYQ, or go to www.kiyq.org. Listen from any telephone, call 605-477-2857. That's 605-477-2857. Long distance charges may apply. KIYQ 107.1 You're listening to BBS Radio. If it's not mainstream, it's on bbsradio.com. Those of you who have an ongoing interest in the JFK assassination might want to know about this. TV producer John Barber. He put together a dream team of JFK researchers, including Coast regular Jim Mars and uh, world-class JFK writers Dick Russell and Joan Mellon. They all got together at UNLV in front of a live audience. They had a screening of Barber's terrific, and I'd say historic, film based on interviews with uh, prosecutor Jim Garrison of New Orleans. And then after the film was shown, the experts all talked about the latest JFK theories and evidence. It's now out on a DVD. Terrific stuff. I'm George Knack, Coast to Coast AM. Hi, this is John Barber. This is John Barber's World Live in Las Vegas, Nevada. And you can tell I was so moved and thrilled by John Perkins. And I cannot wait to read more of his stuff and get him back on on the show. What a thrill that was. And also, I want to thank George Knapp for that great unsolicited review of The Last Word on the Assassination on Amazon. It is no longer for sale on Amazon. It is now free. If you go to YouTube forward slash johnbarbersworld.com, not only can you see that, but you will see a lot of other stuff that will inspire you and outrage you and entertain you. And it's all of the things that I get out of having Joe Satilli on my show, because I would not (laughs) do this show if I did not have Joe to lean on at the end of every guest and be informed so wonderfully. Anyway, Joe, welcome again to the the show. Well, uh, thank you, because I wouldn't do this show if you weren't there to lead me into it. <laughs> be, there would be no no me coming onto the show if it wasn't for John Barber's world. I liked I you know actually visiting John's Barber world is what keeps me sane when I come back to planet Earth every 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 day. Your comment, your observations about. Uh, John Perkins, and then I want to talk to you about uh, uh, Palestine today, Jerusalem. Well, yeah, today. I know. Uh, I, I remember when the Perkins book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, came out. I read it immediately uh, and um, saw him interviewed a number of times. At the time, I, you know, I was working with my um, sort of my my television guru, the great late great Ray Farkas, uh, a National Emmy Award winner, a famous producer inside television news. Um, and by the way, John, he was famous for framing shots. He would go out with, with NBC's national correspondence. He was based in Washington, D.C. They would go out in the morning to do a story, and he would, as the producer, would direct the cameraman to frame shots so that you would never see the reporter. So when they got back at the end of the day to cut <laughs> the story, the reporter was nowhere to be seen. And he, he actually had major 
news figures throw equipment at him on a regular basis for cutting him out of the sh- cutting them out of the shot. I know you I knew you would like that. So uh, he was he's the guy who actually taught me what I what what little I know about uh, television producing. So you know, we actually contacted I contacted on behalf of uh, of Ray and myself John Perkins um agent at that time to try and see if we could get a documentary film going and we had conversations back and forth and it didn't it, it never took, I think, because they were fielding a lot of offers because that was a story that it really has the makings of a movie. And I and I seem to think that something was made based on it that was loosely based on it. And I think a lot of that has to do with the liability issues that he faced when he was turned down by three dozen publishers, over three dozen publishers, because it is a bit of a bombshell. But I have to tell you. When you look at what he's saying he did as an economic hitman, which is basically going to developing countries. Back then, we used to call them third world and second world countries, mostly third world countries because the second world was considered communist, the communist bloc. Um, but we, we call them developing countries. Really, it, it's an old playbook that's that's been picked up by the IMF and the World Bank, which is you go to countries that have resources that you want. You help them exploit their resources by getting them ensnared in, in, in large development projects that is basically like sharecropping. The debt is something that they will never be able to pay off. You are in the process of extracting resources out of their economy, and they're continuing to build these dams and bridges and whatnot that they'll never be able to pay off, and they become ever more indebted to you over time and beholden to you, and then they become your clients. And by the way, it's actually something that China's doing with its Belt and Road Initiative, trillions of dollars of spending around the developing world, while the United States is basically jerking off over oil in the Middle East. China is building infrastructure, particularly around Africa. And Africa is, if you think about it, the next frontier for economic development, because China is essentially poised to do to Africa what American corporations did to China in the 90s, which is basically exploit incredibly cheap labor. And we've seen a canary in the coal mine. China actually opened up its first clothing factory in Ethiopia about a month ago. So now China is seeking cheaper labor for for making clothes in Africa. And they're already getting into these these financially complicated relationships uh, around Africa, it's causing some blowback. A lot of Africans are not really happy with it. It's also caused catalyzing major extinctions among rhinos and elephant uh, and elephants in particular. But um, what he described there is actually it's it's an it's an old playbook and it's a playbook that's still being used today. And we just call it international development. Oh my goodness gracious! Oh my goodness gracious! Anyway, your thoughts. About you know I uh, I'm sort of neutral to Donald Trump as as the president. I'm just thankful that it's not Hillary, okay? Because I can't get a clear picture exactly as to what he wants as compared to what he promised during the campaign. Doesn't seem to be what he's doing today. But I know there's got to be great interference, especially about this business of releasing. The JFK files. I was never a fan of him uh, as a reality star or as 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 a human being. I just wasn't interested in him. He wrote to you know the art of the deal. He's interested in cash. John Kennedy wrote profiles and courage. He was interested in character. But I do have 
a lot of fans who are really strong some Trump supporters. And I never said anything about Trump, but one of them this morning sent me a note totally offended by this Kushner's behavior this morning in Jerusalem. Now, I didn't see it, so I, I didn't watch the news. I didn't know what she was talking about it. I'm talking about, but you referenced it in your your news vandal, and yeah, just got- yeah, I called it. I called his speech at the opening dedication and opening of the U.S. Embassy there as a fire hose of horse manure surging out of his fetid maw. Um, what on earth did he say to inspire <laughs> such verbiage? Because he was talking about Israel as a beacon of freedom of religion, freedom of speech, civil rights, democracy. If you ask Ethiopian Jews inside uh, Israel who have been victimized, some of them by price tag attacks where uh, the predominantly white Jews would, would, are trying to drive out African immigrants. Uh, if you talk about, talk about Arab Israelis who are, who are nominally Israeli citizens, but are basically have second class status, and then, of course, you have the open-air prison in Gaza. You have the continual uh, absconding of uh, illegal seizure of lands in the West Bank. I mean, there are a number of reasons why I found it to be sickeningly disingenuous. Now, I'm not somebody who's opposed to the state of Israel. The state of Israel is fact on the ground. I think that actually there's a there's a I understand why the state of Israel exists. It makes a lot of sense to me. I actually think that the Holocaust is a justification for a Israeli state. I wish that the Israeli state had been founded uh, out of portions of France and Germany or portions <laughs> yeah. of France and uh, Germany and Poland because it was basically French, Poles, and Germans who did most, particularly obviously Germans were the, were the primary catalyst, but collaborators inside Poland and France did a lot to wipe out European, uh, a huge chunk of European Jewry. So I, I think that the people who, who paid for the Holocaust were not the people who perpetrated it. But uh, that being said, Israel is a fact on the ground, but I think we're at a stage now where it is pretty obvious that Palestinians are a um, are a, a conquered and military dominated people. And so Kushner's disingenuousness as somebody who has been tasked with making the deal of the century to bring peace to the Middle East, when really what he's trying to do is bring um, money into his family's bank accounts because of all of the stupid business decisions he's made, like 666 Fifth Avenue. So and by the way, deals that he tried to cut with the emirs of Qatar, and then when they said no, all of a sudden the United States uh, aligned with Saudi Arabia against Qatar, and he got money from the UAE, and the UAE is involved in Russiagate, and there's a whole bunch of stuff that's coming down the pike, John, that's going to blow up a bunch of people's minds about the kind of money that has been cycling around, catalyzed in no small part by the United Arab Emirates. But, but in, in, in well, I mean, uh, uh, Joe, why do you think that Trump would allow him to speak this morning. It's so simple. If anybody is a Trump supporter and they're surprised by any of this, they were not paying attention. The way I look at Donald Trump is that he he has constituencies, and his constituencies are Wall Street, in particular Goldman Sachs. Obviously, he had Goldman Sachs people in there, but Wall Street has been a, a huge beneficiary. I think you could put the mainstream media or the or the legacy media, sometimes it's called, a constituent. They've made huge money off of him, and they promoted him. They helped make him president. 
the defense industry. And if you look particularly at the defense industry and Wall Street, Wall Street got its massive tax cut, a huge windfall. And there are the buybacks, stock buybacks are through the roof, thanks to Donald Trump. So that's that constituency got what it, it wanted out of a transaction with Donald Trump. The defense industry is getting what it wanted, which is a massive increase in defense spending. Uh, Saudi Arabia was a major constituency. They've gotten what they wanted. They got a thaw in relations, relations that were going down the tank in the final year with Obama, and they got the nixing of the Iran deal. All things Trump promised, promised on the campaign trail, just like he promised defense spending, just like he promised the massive tax cut for Wall Street. Israel and Bibi Netanyahu in particular, I don't like saying Israel because Israel is not as monolithic as, as we like to make it. Just like we say, ooh, we, they were talking to the Russians. No, you're talking to Putin's functionaries, the Russians. You start thinking about the Russians are coming. You know what I mean? Come on, people. You have to be more specific. During, so, during, during, during Trump's campaign, the two biggest promises he made was to cut down on foreign wars. He said that he was probably the only person in America who could conclude a peace agreement between Palestine and Israel. And then the next thing he said, we're going to bring these troops home. And we're going to use them to build infrastructure. Yeah, all bait and, and switch. For that reason, because if for it, that but reason John, if alone, anybody, if anybody read the part of the deal, it's the bait of the switch. It's the bait and the switch. This guy is a living game of three card Monty. And if you read between the lines, he also went. You see, you had to go and you had to listen to what he said to specific constituencies, because he would have the general presentation that was filled with bait and switch. Bait and switch. But the key constituency for Donald Trump, the thing that keeps his base together, is the evangelical political movement, and he promised them the movement of the embassy to to. Jerusalem. He has promised them the Iran nuclear deal. He has promised them that he would be a stalwart. He has promised them that he would put key people in key positions on behalf. Of, that's what Mike Pence is. Mike Pence is it was a signal to evangelicals that your your desires are going to be met in my presidency. That's the only reason Mike Pence is there, and he is okay, delivering yeah, evangelicals. I, I, want, I wanted to ask you this because. Last week, there were reports that Israel was bombing Iranian installations in Syria yeah. and that somehow Iranians were fighting back. I never heard much more about it, which is like. No, because it was actually Syrians. If you go to the if you if you pick apart the news reports, which I looked at a ton of different news reports, it was likely Syrians who were doing it. But it was blamed on Iran. And because it came on the heels of the Iran deal being nixed by Trump. The the media machine, because they don't have anybody deployed there uh, outside the Golan Heights to even check on it, didn't they just went with the official story that was pumped out by the United States and Israel. And so what I think is happening is that the United States is using Israel as a proxy to catalyze what it thinks. I think that John Bolton and Rudolph Giuliani have, have both recently talked to the Mujahideen al-Khalq, the MEK is a hyper-radical terrorist organization. It has been listed as a terrorist organization by the U.S. State Department, made up of former loyalists and people who would like to see a return of, uh, of kingship to Iran, people who are loyal to the Shah of Iran. So these are, you know, obviously upper-class people who, uh, by and large, who lost a lot of money in the revolution because the dictator of Iran was, was deposed. So 
uh, Bolton and and Giuliani, who have spoken to them recently, and Bolton in particular works with uh, MEK, and MEK works with Israel. And MEK has been imp- uh, has participated in some assassinations inside Iran. And I believe that these guys think that if they come up with this massive pressure campaign, massive sanctions, and, and start degrading Iranian military uh, um, uh, forces inside Syria to try and create public backlash, I think they think they can foment an internal revolution in Iran. Oh, and that's, I see. You know, I was... that's what I think is being put into place. They're not going to. They don't. There's not going to be full out war because basically, I'm going to tell you this. Iran would kick America's ass. Okay, we can't. <laughs> we can't do it. The, this is not Iraq. You know what I mean? This is not a country that was a bombing range for 15 years, and then we say, "Oh, we're going to go to war." And yeah, as, as Jim Garrison said about Vietnam, he said we were beaten by a bunch of guys running around in black pajamas. Yeah, <laughs> and because it's their territory, and the, the, you see, the Vietnamese had something that the Iranians have, which is is centuries of of significant political and cultural and social identity, which is something Iraq did not have because it was three competing tribal and but, ethnic. But doesn't, doesn't, doesn't Iran remember or recognize that the Shah was a major CIA asset installed after the Central Intelligence Agency murdered a democratically elected Mossadegh? You know, you can't learn yeah, in that. Iran in, they do. in Iran, they do. But the Mujahideen al-Khalq, which is basically Iranian exiles who were sycophants of that CIA-installed regime, those are the people who are now involved in, in the MEK. You see what I'm saying? So, you know, what you're saying, Joe, makes immense sense because I was always concerned that, you know, hold on, I don't think Israel and Iran would start exchanging fire. And if that happened, would America come to Israel's defense? And that, could that lead... To Russia getting it. I don't think that will happen. But what you say makes sense because they fomented fomented that kind of internal disruption in 1953 when Mossadegh was elected. So they figure they can probably do it again. And not just that. If you look at the way wars have gone since Vietnam, really the way to defeat a power is to suck them into a war they can't win, turn it into a meat grinder, and then have that demoralize the population. That's what happened to the United States in Vietnam. That's what happened to Russia and Afghanistan. That's what happened to the United States in Afghanistan, in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan in the last 15 years. And I think that that's what the United States and Israel thinks they can do with Iran and Syria. Suck them into a, into a, into a meat grinder, keep it going, and then you have their, their forces, particularly the, the, the Quds force, Extended into Syria, and then you can start degrading their military capabilities far afield from Iran. So, in other words, it's happening on a proxy battlefield. It's also, uh, to some extent, that's what Iran is doing to Saudi Arabia in Yemen, drawing Saudi Arabia into Yemen and having that, getting them involved in a meat grinder campaign on a proxy battlefield, so that you don't have to sustain the 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 casualties yourself at home. As someone who is deeply, deeply interested in everything that the CIA was supposed to release about the John Kennedy assassination. Actually, I know that the Central Intelligence Agency is not going to leave anything lying around that says this is how we did it. (laughs) Yeah, that is patently obvious. But do you think that there is friction 
honestly, between the deep state and President Trump, no. because he has pulled back on releasing the documents for another couple no, of years. I think, I, think, I think people who think that Donald Trump is fighting the deep state are in a deep state of denial. If you look at who his primary constituencies are, particularly the the finance industry, Wall Street, the defense industry, uh, and uh, and Saudi Arabia, which is and the in the oil industry, because the oil industry is a huge beneficiary of a Donald Trump presidency. Oil, finance, and defense—that's the deep state, folks. Go back and do your reading. If you go back to the found the foundation of what we think of as the deep state in the post World War II period, the CIA was an agent of those three powers. It was a sort of a rogue force that could be deployed, a paramilitary force, primarily initially at the behest of Wall Street, but then it also started to work on behalf of, behalf of U.S. corporations, oil and defense industries. And those are Donald Trump's primary constituencies. He is a deep state all-star. He is develop he is delivering to the deep state in ways that they could they only could have dreamt of before he was elected. And they are getting they are getting rich off of Donald Trump's presidency. And so if he's fighting anything, he's fighting bureaucrats and calling it the deep state, but he's actually not fighting the deep state. He is, in a sense, if you think about it, John, he is almost the perfect, the perfect front man for the deep state. He is such a shiny object and such a distraction. These deep state folks are getting away with murder. They are robbing the bank behind you the know, scenes. Well, Donald Trump is this out you, front. Can, you can go on Facebook and you will find a lot of really bright I mean, really high IQ, bright, informed Trump supporters who are posting that they think that Donald Trump will do what John Kennedy once said he would do. And that was splinter the CIA into a thousand pieces <laughs> no. the wind. And you know what baffles me? I'm certainly I have no interest in, in, in money. I never did anything to make money. Sometimes I made a lot. Sometimes it cost me money sometimes to do my work. I do not understand why the economy is doing so well and why why the Dow Jones is doing so well. Stock buybacks. We, do, we pump, don't make anything. I know because all the money went to the people in finance and now what they're doing is taking this tax cut and buying their own stocks and driving up their own stock prices. I mean it's it's a it's a it's just it's a look, I just want to say one thing about about Trump and evangelicals and Kushner and and the CIA. If he was trying to blow the CIA apart, why would he put Mike Pompeo in there, an evangelical Christian Christian who believes we should just do our best until Jesus comes and takes us home in the rapture? He actually talks about the rapture and talks about it openly when he was at the CIA. He was in that, at CIA and now he's at the State Department. He's going to put torture Gina over into uh, into that position, but it, it's all about the evangelicals. And what today was when Kushner went and gave that speech and Trump delivered the embassy to to the evangelicals, which is essentially what it was. It was his way of trying to shore up his support going into 2018 so that they'll come out and vote. And he promised them that, and he delivered. He has delivered to the evangelicals because the evangelicals want what? They want the Al-Aqsa Mosque destroyed. They want the the Temple Mount to be taken over by, by Israel because once that happens, biblical prophecy will be fulfilled. The end times will happen, and Jesus Christ, it'll be a landing pad for Jesus, and he'll come down, and he'll take all the evangelicals and 144,000 Jews with them, and the earth will be destroyed. That's what they actually well, believe. You know, it gets back to what we said at the top of the show. Follow the money. I mean, Jesus threw the money lenders out of the temples, right? Yep. And when 
When I interviewed Jim Garrison in 1981, he said John followed the money. When he talked about the articles that created the Central Intelligence Agency, he said they were not created by an intelligence man or a military man. They were created by a Wall Street That's right. lawyer, James <laughs> Forrestal. Okay. Uh, uh, James Forrestal began to question America's foreign policy vis-a-vis Israel, and they sentenced to, to a psychiatric ward at Bethesda Naval Hospital and supposedly jumped out of there and committed suicide. Joe, I want to thank you again so much. It's so fun talking to you. I mean, I love it. John, you're the best. You know. <laughs> Thanks. Anyway, I'm going to say uh, goodbye now. Uh, thank Joe. Thank John Perkins again. And this is a line from It's Tough to Be White, which I recorded in 1966. And I'll leave this with you. America is a country where you cannot vote if you're illiterate, but you can get elected. So all of you have a terrific <laughs> night. We will see you and Joe and I will see you in two weeks with another great guest. So as Ed Murrow said, good night and good luck. Sunny, 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 sunny.